It's like I'm competing with God. <laughs> okay, we have a couple of announcements that you need to know about. Um, it's in your bulletins. One is uh, we have Faith Day coming up August 20th. Uh, Nancy and I are going. You should go if you haven't signed up. It's a blast. I see we have a few tickets left, so uh, sign up for that. The second one is on August 27th, we have our annual congregational meeting. And that's where we uh, talk about kind of where we've seen God with this year, where we hope to see God next year, and, um, and where we listen to what your dreams are. They're all written down. The next elder meeting, I think it's the middle of August, the third is the third Wednesday, August 16th or something like that, is um, the annual Q&A where you get a chance to come. If you remember, you should have gotten, or you will if you haven't gotten a letter with all the motions we're going to ask you to approve, and you're welcome to come to the elder meeting and discuss that. That's the official discussion, period. So uh, think about coming. We're going to give an update on the Christian school. Yeah, we've been doing a lot of work behind the scenes and all of that. Okay, I have a couple of other announcements that aren't in the bulletin. I need to let you know that Shelby Buran, our children's pastor, has resigned. And so uh, it saddens us, but she has a good reason. They have to get their son, they want to get their son who's in middle school to a Christian school. So they're moving to Denver. So we are looking for a um, children's director, and uh, we're going to post for it. But if you know somebody that might be interested, let us know. Second thing is, and this one's funny, you, you, I'm talking to our church now, you visitors can just sit back for a minute. You guys are funny. You're just funny. My wife, Nancy, retired three weeks ago. She did. Now she's underfoot. No, 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 that's not what I was going to say. <laughs> but people are coming to her and to me and asking if I'm going to retire now that Nancy retired. I told her she's on fixed income now that she's retired. And she said, well, what about you? And I said, well, no, I'm still working. So I have no intention of retiring unless you guys want me to or the elders want me to. So just put that to rest, okay? It's really interesting, the connections that you make. I want you to make theological connections, and you make these ridiculous connections like because she retired, I must be retiring. No, I'm just joking with you. Nope, have no plan to retire. Okay, today we're going to talk about, uh, I named it the challenge of navigating righteousness. Now, does that sound like a challenge to you to to navigate righteousness? I mean, it seems pretty easy, isn't it? It's kind of like when we ask our leadership teams to operate by faith. Well, we're a church. Don't we do that? No, we really don't. We walk by sight. We don't walk by faith. Most of the time. And that's a gift from the Lord that we don't have to walk by faith all the time because it stretches us. It's risky. Faith, by definition, is an exercise in risk, not security. And so we're going to work through a parable that's well known to all of you, the prodigal son, and maybe turn some of it on its head. For those of you that are visitors, all summer we're working, looking at the parables, and I've been using the metaphor, I stole it from Edith Schaefer, Francis Schaefer's wife, for those of you that are old enough to remember him, uh, one of the best Christian philosophers in the last hundred years. I've read every book that he's written. But she wrote a book, and she used a, the metaphor of a tapestry, that if you've ever, I don't do this kind of stuff, although I've seen it, on the back side of a tapestry, it's a mess. You get threads hanging out, you kind of have a glimpse of the picture, but it's not really clear, but when you step on the front side and look at it, it's beautiful. So what God sees is the front side, and right now, what we see is the back side. We see the back side of the tapestry. That's why we've called this whole series uh, The Messiness. 
the messiness of the kingdom. When we use the word kingdom, it's very natural for you to think of eternity when everything is perfect, but all the parables are about today. They're about today, and today is messy. Why? Because we live in two worlds. We exist in this natural world, but yet we're called on to exercise faith and live in this spiritual world. So at one level, I'm right here, but at another level, Paul says in Ephesians 2, I'm already seated at the right hand of Christ. How is that possible? That could be in two worlds at the same time. We live in a world where, where data and analytics rule, but over here, God doesn't read, he doesn't pay attention to all that. God does what God wants to do. And, uh, and how, do we, how do we make sense of these two worlds? You know, uh, all of Jesus' teachings, they, they exist in this world, but they're moving us into this world. The Beatitudes, we've used that as an example. In fact, two or three summers ago, we looked at the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes turned the world upside down. They turned culture upside down. All of the values that, that were uh, despised in the Roman Empire, typically the weak, the poor, the marginalized, those are all the ones he exalted. Those are the ones who were blessed. So we've asked the question all throughout the summer, how could 12 men uh, bring the Roman Empire to its knees in 400, 500 years? If you wanted to collapse the world empire, how would you do it? You'd probably start with the Senate, the emperor, all the elites and all that. That's not what he did. He didn't come to win. He came to lose. And that's how he won. And so it spread throughout the bottom. That's how it spread, the foundation. The poor people, the widows, the orphans, the marginalized, the downtrodden, all of those, that's where it spread. And after a few centuries, the Roman Empire collapsed. So the teachings of Jesus, they invert what's in the world. So they take this natural world and they invert it and you end up over here in the, in the true spiritual world where we live. This is our real true world. If anyone is in Christ, we're going to come back to this. What does he say? If anyone is in Christ, the old is what? What? gone. It's gone. The new is here. The problem is it doesn't feel like it. I agree. See, they agree with me. It doesn't feel like it, does it? So we've covered all kinds of territory, and every one of these parables, they have a personal impact, but, they, but it's much bigger than that. It's about the kingdom. And every one of you together represents the kingdom, but it's when we are together as a people group, as a faith community, that the kingdom can be felt and seen most clearly. That's why it's absolutely critical that we live righteous lives. We live godly lives. And we struggle with that. Let's just be honest. I asked uh, last week, how many of you have gotten angry in the last month? And I said, you just all admitted to being a church of murderers, you know? And so we struggle really hard to figure out, navigate these two complex worlds as individuals and as an organization. So today we're going to look at a well-known parable in Luke 15, the parable of the sower. I mean, uh, sorry, the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story, but what I'm going to do now is I'm going to, I'm going to read through it, and I'm going to just introduce some simple ideas that a first century reader might have, it might have caught their attention. And as we're working through it, we're building towards a surprise, a shock, okay? Uh, Jesus loved to surprise the people, and parables are one of the great ways to do it. The Pharisees often got it because they spoke against, he spoke against them. So let's just read it. Luke 15, starting in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Stop. No self-respecting son would have ever said that. That's the first shock. What? 
What does Deuteronomy say? If you have a rebellious son, you execute him. There are some days I thought we should have done that with some of my, a couple of my sons. No, that's what it says, right? If they're just disrebellious, they're rebellious and disobedient, you take him out and stone him. And here's, the, here's how he introduces it. The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. Give it to me. I want it. So he divided his property between them. No self-respecting father would have done that. Not in the first century. It didn't work that way. So right off the bat, he's establishing a story that got everybody's attention. They have no idea what's about to come. So not long after that, the young son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country. Once again, they're stopped. What? They're aghast. A distant country would have meant Gentiles. Unclean. You don't go live among them, the Gentiles. We don't even go see the Samaritans. John 4. He took off, and he's gone. Everything you don't want your child to do. Then he squandered his wealth in wild living. Wild living. If you're a parent and you have children, you don't want them to do this, do you? No, you don't want them to do it. We've all had to watch it happen. My parents had to watch it happen. One day when I get to eternity, uh, first thing I want to do is go find my dad and say, Dad, thank you for loving me during my teenage years. My dad died before my kids were teenagers. I didn't have a chance to tell him that. That's when I began to realize he actually did love me. I just didn't realize it. And I'm going to go find him and give him a big hug and say, thanks, Dad, for loving me. And where were you when my kids were teenagers? He died early from cancer. So he squandered everything, wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And so he began to be in need. Okay, now remember, you're sitting here listening to this story. You're Jewish, and every little thing that comes out shocks you. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who needed a store clerk. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. Who needed, oh, he sent him to his fields to feed pigs. You would be going, What? the most unclean of all the animals under the Mosaic law. And he's feeding pigs. I mean, Jesus just is roping these people in, one fact after another. Oh, but it gets worse. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. That's how destitute he was. He had nothing, but no one gave him anything. Some of you have had children that have had to get to the bottom as adults. We did. We had one. He had to get to the very bottom. One of our children, the third time, I got a collect call from jail. Will you accept a collect call from your son? I said no and started crying and hung up the phone. (laughs) Called 30 times in 30 minutes. Would you accept a collect call? No. Hung up the phone. I cried, Nancy and I wept. You've been there. You know what I'm talking about. This is his son. No one gave him anything. You're sitting here hearing this story. 
and you're a Jewish person. He came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, now this is the lesson that he learned. Okay? What does he say? Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Okay, pause. At the beginning of the chapter, it says tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. You know what sinners were in the first century? They were the ruffians. They were the despised. They were the despicable. They were the unclean. No self-respecting person would hang around with a sinner. Who hung around? The adulterers. John 8, they brought a woman caught in adultery. Can you imagine being humiliated and embarrassed for these Pharisees to bring this adultery? We caught her in the act of adultery. People ask me all the time, where was the husband? I mean, where was the man? Well, you see, he didn't actually break the laws. Because under under the Mosaic law, he had different options than the woman. And this story is about to equalize that. Jesus is going to treat her with the same respect. But imagine the shame. Just imagine that. He's walking down the street. He looks up in the tree. Hey, Zacchaeus. Remember singing that as a kid? Come down. I'm eating at your house today. Chief tax collector, the chief robber, the chief extortionist, the guy who's stealing all of your money. Everybody hates him. And he says, I'm going to eat at your house today. You see, those were the sinners. He goes to the house of Simon, the Pharisee, and there's a sinner, a woman, washing his feet. Doesn't say that she's a prostitute, but chances are very good that she was promiscuous. She was the outcast. She was despised by people. Those are the sinners. That's who's listening to this story, and that's who he just described. But it also goes on that first, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the most respected people in the community, they're muttering to themselves, this man's man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Luke lays it out so these parables are about them. It's contrasting the sinners with the respected, righteous people. So, while he was, back to the parable, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. How would his father know? How would his father be happened to looking a long way off and see his son? What's the implication? He's watching. Hope he comes back. I hope he comes back. That's what we went through. And our son did come back. Many of you have been through that. Some of you are still waiting for your children, your adult children to come back, aren't you? I know I've had conversations with you. All right? You see, this father is waiting for the son to come back. So basically, God just entered the picture, entered the parable. And now we're going to learn something about God. He was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So the son said to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and against you. I wonder how many times he recited that and practiced that on his walk home from a distant country, nervous about what would happen. Would my father accept me if I came back? You ever feel that way about God? So many times I've sat in coffee shops, bars over the decades. I'm too horrible. I'm too bad. God had never accepted me. Yeah, well, this is what happened. 
He was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, he, he didn't say, you're right. You know, you're right. What you did was wrong. And, um, and uh, I want to see your attitude change. No, he didn't do that. Father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For this lost son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Okay? I mean, you're sitting here hearing this. This is unknown in this part of the world. To receive somebody back that has stabbed you in the back, that has dishonored you publicly, and that's what he did. But the story gets even better. The shock is coming, because remember the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, are sitting there listening to all this. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and said, hey, what's going on? Well, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed one of your orders. I'm righteous. I'm righteous. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Two weeks ago, Don Payne talked about grace. and talked about the parable of God paying everybody the same, no matter how long they worked. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Okay, who's he talking to? He's talking to, on one hand, these sinners, these terrible people, these tax collectors who are stealing money. And on the other side, he's he's talking in a group where there's Pharisees and teachers in the law. These are the righteous, respectable ones. This is stunning. Who did he throw under the bus? This group. The whole story is fascinating. When you look at what he just said. Which son is right? tough to answer that, isn't it? So at a personal level, we have, there's all kinds of meat in here. Where are you sitting with the Lord? You see, the Lord is gracious. The Lord is kind. He's compassionate. He's loving. You are always, always, always welcome to come back into his presence. The son came back. The prodigal son came back with humility. God didn't say a word about it. He didn't say, yeah, where were you? You were wrong. I love the story of David. Um, when he's running from Saul, he does the one thing he's not supposed to do. He goes and lives with the Philistines, the avowed enemies of God. He's not supposed to go there. And that's where he went to get away from Saul. He lives with them for 14 months. 
and he started with his, uh, he had a small army. He started raiding and marauding on behalf of the Philistines. He goes to the Amalekites, these little villages, and he, he kills the men, uh, takes all the gold, the silver, all their lamps and everything they have, takes the kids, and, and he's growing richer and richer, and he's giving it to the five lords of the Philistines, and they're getting richer and richer. For 14 months, he's so removed from God. We don't have a record during those 14 months that he ever stopped and consulted God on anything. He's so far removed from God that the Philistines decide to attack Israel. And he shows up to fight. The very people he's been anointed to lead. He's ready to kill them. And they're, fortunately, they're a lot smarter than he is. And they're thinking, wait, Jews in the front, Jews in the back, this is never a good scenario. So they say, David, go home. And he gets angry. Haven't I proven my loyalty to you? Yes, you have. But in this case, we don't need you to go home. So he goes home. Okay, pause. I picture God. I often dramatize and visualize how God might react. Uh, I picture Jesus when he looks at any of us. He's got a twinkle in his eye. Well, I picture God sitting there. And Jesus is right hand. He says, what do we do with David? So Jesus said, um, let's send the Amalekites after his village. That'll get his attention. It's not punishment. We need to get his attention. So David gets back to his little town of Ziklag, burned to the ground. Nothing left. Everything's gone. Then he prays and said, what should we do, God? What you expect God to say is, where have you been, David? Haven't heard from him for quite a while. How come you're with your enemies? I told you not to do that. Does he do that? He goes, no. He says, go after them. Not one hair on their head has been touched. I protected them all, and the implied message is to get your attention. Okay? David goes after them, and they rout them, the Amalekites. Not only did they get all of their stuff back, but God blesses them and gives them all the other stuff that the people had, the soldiers had. And that's when David basically realizes his mistake. And God says, you're ready to be the king. What he didn't know was that over here, the Philistines had attacked the Israelites and they just killed King Saul. You see, God's got two things going on at the same time. He is, Saul is paying the price for his sin, overt sin and rebellion, a lot of places, and he's preparing David's heart over here to come back and fulfill what he wanted him to fulfill to lead the nation of Israel. When he gets back, he becomes the king. And then he turns around and routs the Philistines. They were right. Shouldn't have Jews in the front, shouldn't have Jews in the back. You see, that's what's going on here. The one son who's, who is, represents the sinners, the, the despicable people, the unclean, the unworthy, he's the one who runs away, <coughs> squanders everything he has, lives his, you know, does everything he's not supposed to do, and he comes back and he says, I'm not worthy to be your son. And his father said, you're not worthy to be my son? Are you kidding? Let's lavish all this incredible wealth and praise and glory on you. How happy I am that you returned. And then the ones who represent the scribes and the Pharisees, they're indignant, just like that son. But God didn't abandon them either. He says, you've been with me the whole time. Don't I love you too? And you see, at the individual level, you can work it out, but let's talk about it for just one second at the organizational level of the church. One of the things I've learned after, you know, thousands of coffees and beers up here in the county in 10 years is talking to these people that have walked away from the church, walked away from the faith. 
You know what the most common thing I hear is over and over and over again, over and over and over again, all the time? Why'd you walk away? Judgment. Even so, Jesus said, even though Jesus said in Luke 6, do not judge, do not condemn. Judgment. That's what chased them away from the church. And that's well known in today's world. That's one of the most common things. What kind of church are we? For you visitors, ask yourself your question for your own church. What kind of church are we? Are we the church that judges people and pushes them away? We all have those hot buttons, don't we? Is an adulterer worthy to come to our church? Are they welcome? The only caught in adultery. Jesus never called on her to repent. It's kind of interesting. He defended her. How about people with different sexual orientation? Are they welcome in our churches? What is the hot button that you have that makes you want to say, you can't come here? We talked about this last week. That was the core sin of Israel against the Gentiles. You're not like us. Stay out. And what we have here is right down the middle is this gracious God, and that's what we're supposed to be like. A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And then he says, do not judge, do not condemn. As far as I'm concerned, I don't care who walks through the doors of our church. In fact, the more messed up they are, the more excited I get. I want to spend time with them. I want to hear the stories. I can't convict, redeem, or transform another human, so I get to go along for the ride. I've got the easy job, not managing their sin. I get the easy job of loving them, and with a twinkle, because I picture Jesus that way, A.W. Tozer said, you look in God's eyes, you see them twinkling with delight. I want to go hear the stories, because you know what? Their life is messed up. It doesn't matter what sin they're struggling with. It's messed up. They're in this natural world, and I have the pleasure of helping them live over here in this world, right here. And as they draw closer to, the cry, to Christ, the heart begins to soften. So some of you out there are part of those churches. I've been in part. That's my whole upbringing. You're not like us. Stay up. And others of you have been rejected by your church. You're not welcome here. It's really interesting. You pick the sin. You fill it in. But here's what the church does in America, as far as I can tell. I do a lot of research and thinking about this. Some churches affirm the sin, and they don't want to say anything about it. Well, there's, there's no need for redemption if the sin is normalized. And the other part of the church says you're not like us, stay out. They marginalize people. And there's no pathway to redemption. Why don't we just not worry about it? Why don't we just step into the lives of people and all the messiness that they bring to us and love them and watch the Holy Spirit do his magical thing, his supernatural thing where people's hearts begin to soften. And pretty soon they're going to say, I'm not happy. And I can chuckle and say, I know you're not happy. Sin makes you unhappy. (laughs) It robs you of life. And now that you're there, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? I'm going to read you one more verse, and we're going to close with this. Because this is the very thing. Paul, he picked up on this parable, I believe, when he wrote these words. So from now on, this is 2 Corinthians 5, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. The labels are gone. I don't care if you're Republican. I don't care if you're Democrat. It doesn't matter one iota to me. I don't care what sin you're struggling with. Except as a pastor, to know how I might bless you and help you. But it doesn't bother me. I'm not, I don't need to be in your private stuff, right? Though we once regarded Christ this way, we regarded Christ 
basically as a Jewish Pharisee, he's, he's despicable, he's horrible, we don't want him there, but no longer, he says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. What was old? What was your life? We don't care about that, it's gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, that's what God's doing in this parable. To the son who's gone, whatever pushed him away, we don't know. And he's talking to those sinners. Whatever it is that pushed you away, we don't know. Come back, come back, come back, come back. And he gave this same ministry to us. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making this appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is where it gets dicey. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Yes, I believe in imputed righteousness, but I don't think it comes from this verse. It comes from other verses in Romans. Because listen to these magical words. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become our sin, so that in Christ we might become God's righteousness. You know what that righteousness is? Putting to rights what is wrong. We live in this fallen world over here, and he's given us this ministry of reconciliation. We are his ambassadors. We become his righteousness to the world. That was the covenant. I will make you a kingdom of priests. We care about people. So if you're one of those people that the church has pushed you away, please, please come back. There's a bunch of you. I don't have to ask. I already know. Whatever it is that drew you away, pushed you away, whatever judgment, please come back. For those of you that are still here in churches, please quit judging people. Stop. You will know them by their judgment. I'm sorry. You will know them by their love. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for loving us. Relentlessly loving us. Uh, There's no end to your generosity and love. And this parable is so fascinating that you would just take one of the most despised people and say, I love you. I love you. Come back. You're welcome here. Help us to be that church. Father, help American churches, churches all around the country, Lord. Please help them to become more like that. Come back. Please come back. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to, for those of you that are visitors, we, we end.